Just in case, just in case, comes now the undersigned and hear my request with all due respect. From the honorable, his honor, her honor, your honor, do you want to pursue it? Hello and welcome to the April 3, 2017 edition of Just In Case, the podcast of criminal law cases. Just in, from the Supreme Court of the United States, the Tenth Circuit, and the Kansas Appellate Courts. I'm Paige Nichols, and this podcast is brought to you by Monnet and Spurrier Chartered on the first and third Mondays of every month. Today I'll fill you in on published cases of interest decided on or after March 20, 2017, starting with the United States Supreme Court. In Moore v. Texas, the High Court sent back a Texas death penalty case holding that Texas's court-invented test for deciding whether a person is intellectually disabled and therefore not eligible for execution violates the Eighth Amendment. Among other faults, Texas ignored current clinical standards for evaluating intellectual disabilities and concluded that Mr. Moore was really perfectly competent to be executed because, after all, before his conviction, he managed just fine as a homeless person who played pool and mowed lawns for money. By using a test that was an invention of the Texas court, untied to any acknowledged source and not taking into account the views of medical experts, Texas created an unacceptable risk that people with intellectual disabilities will be executed, said Justice Ginsburg for the majority in Moore v. Texas. Moving on to the Tenth Circuit, in Butter v. Addison, the Tenth Circuit granted federal habeas relief to a state prisoner serving three life sentences. When Mr. Butter was 16 years old, he was convicted of several violent non-homicide crimes in Oklahoma State Court. He was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences. On paper, Mr. Butter had a possibility of parole, but not for over 130 years because of the consecutive nature of those sentences. This was, in effect, a life-without-parole sentence, and it violated the Eighth Amendment as interpreted by the United States Supreme Court in Graham v. Florida. In our only other published case of note from Denver this week, the Tenth Circuit held that the Oklahoma crime of feloniously pointing a firearm is not a crime of violence for ACCA purposes. And so Damien Tittle's 188-month sentence gets reversed. And Mr. Tittle's case is likely to be an important one on these kinds of enhancement predicate questions going forward because it's one of the Tenth Circuit's most detailed discussions of the categorical versus the modified categorical approach since Mathis. But you won't find the case if you search for United States versus Tittle And that's because about a year into the case, some clever prosecutor filed a superseding indictment under one of Mr. Tittle's AKAs. And so in the future, when you are faced with a Mathis-type question, be sure you are familiar with and cite United States versus Titties. That's T-I-T-T-I-E-S. And now that I've gotten that off my chest... Let's see what's shaking on the plains. In September of 2015, I reported a case from the Kansas Court of Appeals called State v. Parry. I'm just going to play that clip for you now. In State v. Parry, the Court of Appeals invoked the Law of the Case Doctrine 
to block a prosecutor's creative efforts to relitigate a suppression motion. Here's what happened. The state charged Mr. Perry with drug crimes. The charges arose from a warrantless search of Mr. Perry's apartment. Mr. Perry moved to suppress the fruit of this search. The state argued that the search was consensual. The district court held a hearing, rejected the consent argument, and suppressed the evidence. The state filed an interlocutory appeal and lost. End of story, right? Not for this intrepid prosecutor. After the appeal, the state dismissed the charges against Mr. Perry without prejudice and then refiled an identical complaint under a new case number. It was Groundhog Day all over again as Mr. Perry again moved to suppress the evidence. But this time, the state, having previously lost its consent argument, argued exigent circumstances and inevitable discovery. Well, the district court was no more moved by these arguments than it had been by the consent argument, and so the court again suppressed the evidence, and the state again filed an interlocutory appeal. Not so fast, says the Court of Appeals. The doctrine of law of the case prevents a party from serially litigating an issue already presented and decided on appeal in the same proceeding, so the court holds. Will this be the end of the story? Hard to say. Judge Gardner dissented, finding the law of the case doctrine inapplicable here, where you don't technically have the same proceeding, given the state's dismissal and refiling under a new case number. Whether Perry will make it up to the Kansas Supreme Court on petition for review, well, we'll just have to wait and see. The state did not petition for review the first time around. By the way, the case name again is State v. Perry, and that's P-A-R-R-Y, like the fencing term. In that spirit, maybe it's time for the state to give in and say, touché. Well, the state did not give in. The state petitioned for review. And the state won review, but the state did not win a reversal. In what will surely be the last chapter of State v. Perry, the Kansas Supreme Court holds that the state refiled identical criminal charges on the same facts against the same defendant after losing the first interlocutory appeal just so it could repackage the same issue it had already lost. It did so only as a means to revive a dead issue and to ignore this reality would defeat the long-standing purposes supporting the law of the case doctrine. Game over. State versus Wright is a murder and conspiracy case. Mr. Wright argued on appeal that his right to be present at all critical stages was violated when a continuance hearing was held without him. The Kansas Supreme Court agreed, but it also held that the record was not sufficient to decide whether or not this constitutional violation was harmless, and so the court remanded the case for further fact-finding on this question. In State v. Rodriguez, the Kansas Supreme Court affirmed Mr. Rodriguez's aggravated kidnapping and other convictions, rejecting his argument that a deficiency in the kidnapping charge prejudiced him. But the court reversed his sentence. Mr. Rodriguez had been sentenced with a criminal history score of B. He had three prior misdemeanor convictions that were aggregated to equal one prior person felony conviction. 
but two of Mr. Rodriguez's priors were for Colorado misdemeanor assault, which can be committed negligently. Kansas doesn't have negligent person crimes like that. And so these misdemeanors should have been treated as non-person crimes not subject to aggregation. And the difference to Mr. Rodriguez? This sentencing error increased his sentence by 29 years. And so, again, we are reminded of the importance of challenging the use of prior convictions to enhance a defendant's sentence, whether we are in state or federal court. Lastly, from the Kansas Supreme Court, we have State versus Sasser. Here the court upheld Mr. Sasser's burglary and criminal damage to property convictions, rejecting instructional and evidentiary claims. Mr. Sasser's evidentiary claim was that the trial court erred when it let a lay witness testify about what he thought it would cost to repair the victim's damaged motorcycle. A majority of the court found the testimony appropriate, even from a lay witness, because it was not based on information that was so scientific, technical, or specialized that it cried out for greater court control, such as is required for expert testimony. And that's it for our short episode today. Have you got something to say? Email me at justincasepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Paige Nichols, and I'll be back again in two weeks. Oye, 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 wherefore, whereby, we're ready to wear. Rest you to cutter, give me pizza cutter, just in case.